Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So being part of the royal family of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia means you've got a pretty good life. You drive on private highways, you literally bring your own escalators when you stay at hotels in foreign countries, and you have one of the biggest luxuries of all, the knowledge that your position in life is pretty secure, that change comes slowly, if at all, and that there's usually pretty much no drama. But then this happened. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman then ordered the arrest of numerous prominent Saudis, including relatives. So that's a reference to this really unprecedented purge by a young prince named Mohammed bin Salman, almost universally known as MBS, who will be the country's next king and who spent the past few days arresting members of his own family. So not to mix too many pop culture references, but let's talk about that Game of Thrones. Who's doing the purging? Who's being purged? Why it matters to Saudi Arabia? Why it matters for the U.S.? And let's start, Jen, with who's doing the purging? Who is this guy? So Mohammed bin Salman uh, is the young, dynamic crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He's only 32 years old. He's only been crown prince since June of 2017. And he's pushed this really ambitious plan to bring economic and, and social reform to Saudi Arabia. He, just to kind of clarify for people, since we don't really have a monarchy at all uh, in the U.S., so the crown prince is the second most important, like second highest position in in Saudi Arabia after the king, and he's the designated successor to the king. And King Salman is, is 81 years old, so he's kind of getting up there. So few outside of Saudi Arabia had actually heard of MBS, of Mohammed bin Salman, before his dad became king in 2015. He has a bachelor's degree in law from King Saud University in Riyadh, but he was just kind of one of the many princes operating in the, in the area. And then his dad became king and he immediately named him, named MBS as defense minister. So he suddenly got this really prominent position. And then shortly after, there was another shakeup and he essentially convinced his dad to um, name him crown prince and bumped out the other former crown prince. So He's young, he's dynamic, he's seen by some as this, you know, reformer who's trying to push Saudi Arabia and bring it into a kind of more modern, more moderate, more economically forward-thinking kind of country. So we'll come back in, in a bit to the to that, because the word dynamic, I think, may sound more positive in some ways than probably we all intended to. But It's so also we'll dynamic with bombing a lot of people. Yeah, so we'll come right. back to the dynamic both ways that's killing. dynamic. But Zach, who was purged? I mean, that's sort of the other flip side of this. Right, so there's two separate things that we should talk about when we talk about his purge, right? The first one is the arrest of 11 different princes, most notably Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, who is an incredibly wealthy investor, even by Saudi standards. One of the richest men in the world, owns shares in major companies like Twitter, and he got thrown in jail. I mean, jail in air quotes, right? What happens when you're a Saudi prince who basically never get arrested, and this is the first time, is that they go to the Ritz-Carlton and they get stuck there, and that is their form of imprisonment. But nonetheless, this is a huge deal, because for the past several decades, all disputes inside the Saudi royal family were settled internally, not in the public eye. Every expert on Saudi Arabia was stunned by these arrests because it showed that MBS was willing to to make this very public, to make a, a grand power play in a way that no Saudi prince had been willing to prior. The other things to talk about are the dismissal of two people from top posts, the head of the National Guard and the head of the Navy. These people weren't thrown in jail, but 
they being fired from those posts is still tremendously significant. It's a form of MBS consolidating power. And the National Guard is really key here because it was created by the Saudi government as a counterpoint to the military. It is essentially a parallel army uh, in order to prevent military coups. So if MBS fires somebody who is seen as widely seen as a rival, another prince who might topple him at one point in the future and is installing someone who's more likely to be friendly to him, well, he's really consolidated a tremendous amount of power. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting when you talk about like the way the kind of power has worked out in the royal family. So there are as many as I think around 15,000 princes and princesses in Saudi Arabia. So the founder of modern Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud, had dozens of sons. And through those lines, there are different kind of factions within the Saudi royal family, different branches. And the way they kind of balanced power was they would put a certain line, you know, the certain branch of the family in charge of, of one section. And then you would have, you know, the descendants of another son in charge of maybe this over here and oil. Must somebody gets the, the National Guard. Well, one kind of other line of, of succession kind of gets economic peace over here or gets to run this. And that way it was kind of all balanced so that you essentially had to force consensus to get things done. But everyone kind of had their own little fiefdoms. And so to have MBS come in and essentially take over all of these, the National Guard was basically like one of the last holdouts that wasn't under his control already. It's really shocking to have one person. We think of it as a monarchy and it is, but it's a massive family and they they have shared power and basically been able to function because they spread out power this way. So this is what's really shaking up Saudi Arabian politics. Is It's this massive consolidation of power in the hands of essentially one person. In, in that sense, Yoki, your Game of Thrones uh, analogy was even more on point than it might sound abstractly. Thank you. In Westeros, the way that things work in the fictional show Nerd. is that – the different houses, the royal houses share power and balance against each other. And there isn't – the king is in some ways a, a vessel or a conduit for internal jockeying between the different noble houses. And in Saudi Arabia, they're all technically the House of Saud, but they are different families. And they have different power bases in the right. same way that they do in Westeros. And they jockey amongst each other for control over different parts of state and features of governance. Right. But now – it's uh, as if Joffrey managed to successfully kill everyone Watch else. me go even nerdier on Game of Thrones because it actually does hold again. So for people who watch the show addictively like we all did. I read all the books. There was the faith militant who were like the, the sort of insane, fanatical religious part of society in Westeros. And I mention it because Saudi society and Saudi power functioned in some ways in multiple pillars, right? So one was, as Jen was saying, the consensus of other parts of the royal family. One was the different branches of the military. You know, Zach, as your, your point, some of them were counterweights. And the third was the religious establishment. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the home of Mecca and Medina. It sees itself and portrays itself as sort of the guardian of the Islamic faith. That's part of like the way that it tries to present itself. It funds the construction of mosques all over the world. Religion is obviously a key part of a country that is often described as, as a theocracy. So what MBS did if we look at each of those things, he sidelined most every other branch of the royal family. So that's one gone. He took every branch of the security service. That's another gone. And he has brought the clerics in line too. Part of it is he's taken away their ability to make arrests. It was a big thing where they could arrest people on the street for almost any reason that's gone. He's given women the right to drive, theoretically, at some later date, but that's also seen as a major change. And he managed to get them to endorse this purge, which is kind of interesting. There's a quote that I want to read, which comes from the Council of Senior Scholars, which is basically 
the head religious body in Saudi Arabia. They're sort of equivalent of the state religious authority. And this is what they said right after the purge. Islamic law instructs us to fight corruption, and our national interest requires it. So here you have an endorsement of what he did. And that's what's fascinating to me. Every branch, theoretically now, of Saudi power and Saudi governance now flows through him. And it's even more than that. That corruption point is really vital. Right. Because this was sold as an anti-corruption purge, as the arrest of people who were in some way corrupt. But the thing is, in Saudi Arabia, there's there's very little disentangling the finances of the House of Saud from the finances of the House of State. And in that scenario, pretty much anyone can be arrested on corruption charges. Someone probably took money from the state somewhere, or the government can just make up a pretext if it wants to. And MBS right now is the head of a counter-corruption task force in Saudi Arabia. That means that, I mean, he can arrest anyone, right? And one of the points you hear scholars of Saudi Arabia bring up now about this is everyone after these purges is living in fear because at any point, MBS could decide that they're corrupt. And so it's a way of uh, of forcing them in line through the threat of arrest. It's a kind of panoptic effect. I like that. A panoptic effect. Panopticon. I know my Foucault and my Bentham. Yeah, I'm into it. Um, so – Yeah, I think going to the corruption piece is really important because when you talk about the money, there's a there's a really important economic side to this that is somewhat overlooked in the kind of broader political jockeying that's happening. So the crackdown could also really help replenish the state coffers. So Saudi Arabia has had some financial difficulties in large part because of the the energy slump, low oil prices. In part, they've kept them low on purpose to try to drive out American shale and uh, shale oil revolution and all of that. But the fact is that that their state coffers have gotten low. So the Saudi government basically said that the assets that they accumulated through this corruption probe will become state property. So as of last night, 1,800 bank accounts had been frozen in connection with the purge, um, including that of the former crown prince, Mohammed bin Nayef, who was Washington's kind of favorite darling. He used to work with um, the U.S. a lot in counterterrorism, and he was kind of thought to be like the big, like influential security power broker. And then he was sidelined, and he's now, we think, under house arrest. Um, they just seized his assets last night. So it, there's also a, an economic side to this because part of what Mohammed bin Salman, what MBS has been pushing, is this big kind of economic. Uh, rejuvenation. So he launched in 2016 the Vision 2030 plan, which is this plan to kind of diversify the Saudi economy and get it to end its reliance on on its oil reserves, on on its um, oil revenues for its economy, because eventually that's going to run out. So it's you know he announced this big massive plan involves all kinds of things. Well, one they're going to build this this massive like city of the future out in the middle of the desert, and to be able to kind of do these big economic plans, this big push that he has essentially based his rise on, they need some money. (laughs) So uh, over the past three fiscal years, Saudi posted more than $200 billion in budget deficits. They've been borrowing a lot on the international bond market. They've withdrawn something like $250 billion from their own foreign reserves. So they're cash-strapped, basically. So by, by getting all these really, really, really rich princes who many of whom have been kind of symbols within Saudi Arabia of this kind of profligate, you know, super over-the-top spending wildly on all these rich, lavish things while the Saudi economy isn't doing so great. So by taking that 
by making them kind of sacrificial lambs and taking their money and putting it back into state coffers officially, you kind of get a two-for-one effect, right? You actually get some cash on hand, and you also had this kind of political win. And you also try to solidify the image that you are this young person different than what came before you, he actually has used the phrase addiction to oil. So this isn't just a phrase that sort of outside people use. He's used it. This Vision 30, part of it involves building these gigantic like luxury resorts along the Saudi beach. Richard Branson, everyone's favorite like nutty inventor of Virgin Airlines and sort of the Virgin companies is investing in it, which is kind of a a big endorsement of the plan. It is weird to think of Saudi Arabia, luxury resort and beach, since women can't usually go to beaches, especially if they're wearing something that women would wear if they're Western and prone to go to a luxury hotel. It's also, Zach, to your point from before, when Donald Trump visited Saudi Arabia, and we'll come a little bit back to why he did and what he did there, but he stayed in the hotel that is now the prison. And that's where they projected his face, his giant face on the wall of the hotel. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's also the same hotel that two weeks ago, literally just two weeks ago, it's where they held this big, massive international business conference. So they brought in Richard Branson. They brought in like these million billionaires from around the world to invest. Um, they called it like the Davos of the desert, right? So it's like this big thing. And it was organized by MBS. It was his big like business conference. It's at the Ritz-Carlton, the same place where Trump came. And they literally had a giant projection of his face on the side of it. And then now two weeks after the Davos in the Desert conference, you have all these like Saudi princes holed up in like sleeping bags in the lobby in like the worst, saddest sleepover ever. Is that actually how they're being held? Just sitting in the lobby? There are photos that were coming out of them. They're they're in this giant like ballroom. Yeah, it's like a a conference ballroom. And they're like on these little like pallets and they're like curled up with blankets. I'm sorry, arrests usually aren't funny, but that's really funny. I mean, considering like the way that average criminals in Saudi Arabia, particular dissidents, are treated in Saudi prisons. Yeah, it's a nice gilded cage. But it's just, it's really striking that it's literally the same exact hotel where all of these things have happened. Also, incidentally, the nearby Marriott is really, really happy that this is happening at the Ritz Carlton <laughs> um, because now they have to cancel all of their upcoming like conferences at the Ritz because the princes are all sleeping there. So the Marriott's like, yeah, we'll just we'll just take the conferences. So they're like so excited by this whole thing, just as an aside. We should probably just uh, point out for people who are, are listening and maybe wondering, MBS isn't our sort of casual way of referring to him, and it's not us trying to, like, diminish this guy. He is universally known and described in Washington as MBS. And so I just want to flag that this isn't us trying to be cute. This is actually how people refer to him. Part of that actually has to do with the the CIA, who for the longest time were the only people who knew who that was because they are Saudi watchers. And they have been like, like I said, you know, MBS wasn't very well known outside of Saudi and the people who are literally tasked with trying to follow the royal family. And the CIA has a really fun way of, like, trying to put little acronyms for people's names. If you remember, UBL was how we referred to Osama bin Laden for the longest time until 9-11 when everyone suddenly found out who he was. So that's part of the reason why we call him MBS, because the people who talk about him are especially like Bruce Roydell from Brookings, his former CIA. So that's one reason. You know, yeah, Zach, you, you wrote a piece uh, on Vox.com a couple of days ago that I really liked and wanted to flag that it's sort of the flip side to M- MBS, right? So there's the side of him that is trying to portray himself as young. There are the things he's done that are arguably legitimately progressive, allowing women to drive. It's sad to refer to that as progressive, but for that country it is. But then there's what he's done when it comes to foreign policy and especially military policy, and that does not look progressive. No, it's it's the opposite of that. So his first big initiative after becoming defense minister was spearheading Saudi Arabia's intervention in the Yemeni civil war. And... This was billed as a counter-Iran 
action because the Houthi rebels in Yemen who had recently taken over the government at that point were Shia, a certain sect of Shia, and Iran is Shia and Saudi is Sunni. And so they saw this as a rise of a religiously hostile power. What this has done in effect is just kill a lot of people. Death tolls suggests what 5,000 plus civilians or around 5,000 civilians have been killed. Thousands more have been wounded. That doesn't account for the fact that this has created the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, dwarfing even Syria in terms of the number of people. I mean, cholera is back. Children are dying of cholera again. And they just instituted a blockade to prevent like medical supplies and food from getting in. And Saudi warplanes. famine. Yeah, they've been bombing hospitals. They claim not intentionally, but bullshit. They've been bombing schools. Farms, food production and distribution centers, roads, bridges, like all war crimes. And it's important to emphasize both the brutality of this war to illustrate what MBS has nearly single-handedly done. This was his war. It's widely understood to be his war in DC circles. But also to illustrate the almost monomaniacal focus in his foreign policy in Iran. It's described sometimes as reasserting Saudi interests, but what that really means is intensifying a campaign around the Middle East to roll back Iranian influence. And that campaign is very violent and destabilizing. Iran's tactic, in part, is to get into civil conflicts and destabilize those conflicts by sending in its own proxy forces or support whatever proxy force there that it might find useful. MBS has been trying to do the reverse, which just leads to two very large countries funding different sides of wars, which just makes the war longer and more bloody and leads to a greater potential for a clash with Saudi Arabia – sorry, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And it's, it's disastrous. Thousands have died as a result of his policies and thousands more will likely die in the future. And the U.S. is supporting it, right? I think that's important to note too. Um, just before we, we go, I want to talk about the, the Trump side of things too. Um, but I did want to add – and I'm glad, Yochi, that you, you made a point to kind of mention this. It's not even just in foreign policy. It's also – I think we need to be really careful – and by we, I mean Western analysts in general – of kind of buying hook, line, and sinker. I don't think you buy hooks, line, and sinkers. Anyway, uh, the the kind of frame of, of MBS as reformer, we have a really, really crappy history of actually like identifying people who are legitimately going to be reformers in the Middle East. I mean, we've done this over and over again. No, we not just with- the Middle East. Look at Aung San Suu Kyi in okay. Burma. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. That's you're you're right. That's absolutely fair. But I mean, I was thinking, you know, Bashar al-Assad, right? Like he came in and he was going to be this economic reformer who's going to push for, you know, modernization and like social change. And, you know, he's a murderous thug who's, you know, gassing his own people. So, you know, it's I think we have to be really careful that Comparatively speaking, you know, compared to the, you know, the current like economic program and the current like social kind of rules that are in Saudi Arabia, some of the things he's pushing are progressive, but it's a sliding scale. We're not, he's not coming in and like ushering in democracy. Quite the opposite. He's consolidating power in, you know, an authoritarian sense. He's rounding up, you know, the people he's rounded up are not just corrupt people. He's also rounded up dissidents and pro-democracy activists and, you know, pro-women's rights activists and, and rounded them all up. So I think we need to be really careful, and I, I mean that to myself, to not oversell him as this 
grand reformer. He's not a nice guy. He is someone, though, that has gotten a lot of public endorsements, including from our own president, who tweeted after this all happened that he frankly— it was a tweet saying, basically, I support what you're doing. But he has talked about his love for Saudi Arabia in really vivid terms, including when he said this. I have always heard about the splendor of your country and the kindness of your citizens. But words do not do justice to the grandeur of this remarkable place. So that was Donald Trump when he visited Saudi Arabia as part of this giant midi swing. And that, in part, was to show two things when he was there. One— that he kind of likes Saudi Arabia for Saudi Arabia. But much more importantly, and Zach comes back to the point you were making about Yemen, there is this sort of Cold War that's been going on for quite some time between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The U.S. clearly does not prefer the Iranian side, but has been mildly subtle in that. Well, Donald Trump went to Saudi Arabia, and you could tell from that quote, other parts of the speech where he's more explicit about the evils of Iran, he was going all in on Saudi Arabia and all in against Iran. And that was a really, really striking part of really the first big trip he did as president. Donald Trump doesn't have a super strategic vision of the Middle East, but many of the people around him have some stronger views about Iran, even the people that are typically defined as moderates in the Trump administration, like H.R. McMaster and Secretary of Defense Mattis, are, are hawkish on Iran. They believe that Iran's influence is the number one or may, or close to the number one threat to the United States in the Middle East, and it needs to be aggressively countered. And if that is your view, that you need to step up escalation against Iran, well, your number one friend is going to be Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis have figured this out and have pretty aggressively courted Trump, not just through this trip, but also through interpersonal contact. MBS has become friends with Jared Kushner from what we can tell. I read one report that they stayed up uh, for a while, late into the night, just chatting Painting each other's uh, nails. On, on one recent trip when, <laughs> when Jared was there as two overprivileged young men who are in over their skis or want to do in the situation. And, and are there because of who they married and or what family they were born into. Yeah. But it seems that there, there's just a lot of linkages uh, between the Trump administration and the MBS faction of the Saudi royal family at this point, both ideological and personal. And it suggests that there's likely to be growing U.S. support for especially since we've become less interested in dealing with human rights and more willing to countenance uh, civilian casualties in our own bombings. Yeah, I think it's also really just kind of the Washington consensus, right, that that we need to counter Iran. I mean, you can't go to a think tank. You're, you'd be hard pressed to go to a think tank anywhere in Washington on either side of the political spectrum, you know, or in the middle and not find some white paper, some article, some blog post saying that we need to counter Iran, that we absolutely need to counter Iran, that, you know, the strategy for the Middle East needs to be to push back and roll back Iranian influence. The kind of you know, flip side of that is, you know, during the Obama years, in part because of the push to get the Iran deal, there was a lot of perception and there was some truth to it, definitely, that Obama was not doing enough to roll back Iran, right? That he was being too open to Iran and snubbing the Saudis and our traditional Sunni Gulf allies. Those allies have not always been the best allies to us. Let's just put it that way. We have suffered a lot from our support. Uh, but more importantly, people in the Middle East have suffered a lot because of our support for some of these authoritarian governments because of this massive like 
push that, oh, you know, we need to, to roll back Iran. Iran is evil. Right? Iran does a lot of really bad, really shitty destabilizing things, supporting terrorist groups all over the all over the world, all over the region. But, you know, part of what we're seeing, I think, is also just this broader kind of Washington consensus. So when it comes to Trump, like this isn't something that is like radical or strange that people in Washington are like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's doing this. People love that he's doing this. Finally, we're turning back. You know, we're going to really get tough on Iran. I mean, there was just a, an op-ed in the the Wall Street Journal just the other day um, from some people I used to work at, with at Brookings who were talking about, you know, the number one thing we need to do is to roll back Iran. So this is a really common position in Washington. It's also worth noting, and I agree completely, that Washington has the ability to make difficult things sound easy and bloodless. <laughs> so military intervention sounds bloodless. Roll back around sounds bloodless. But what we're seeing in Yemen is it is really bloody, right? You can have a policy that intuitively and intellectually makes sense. Iran does bad things, therefore we will roll back Iran. Saudi Arabia is willing to fight Iran, therefore we will ally with Saudi Arabia. But, you know, Zach, as we're seeing in Yemen, that can mean a lot of people die. It theoretically can mean destabilizing Iraq. It could theoretically mean destabilizing Lebanon, where there was this weird moment just this past week where the prime minister of Lebanon went to Saudi Arabia and then resigned publicly in Saudi Arabia rather than in his own country, which is very strange. But this idea of rolling back Iran that makes intuitive sense, try to put that into practice and people die, lots of them. I want to be very clear about the Yemen thing because this is an example of how the Iran focus isn't just rational in the way that you're describing it. It's monomaniacal and counterproductive in a lot of ways. The Houthi rebels are Shia in a sense, but they are not and were not Iranian proxies. Iran doesn't direct them. It doesn't tell them what to do. It and certainly in the years prior to 2017, had very minimal linkages with Iran. But when Saudi Arabia started bombing the Houthis in 2015, uh, they needed somebody to help. And they were forced, in a way, to start accepting more Iranian help and guidance because when you have one large regional power bombing you, you need assistance. Otherwise, you'll be in trouble. So they opened up a pathway through this intervention to greater Iranian influence in Yemen because they're paranoid about Iran. And many people in Washington, too, are paranoid about Iran. And part of that is an ideology that we have here. And part of that, frankly, and this is sort of under-discussed, is the amount of Gulf money that's floating around and Saudi money that's floating around in the D.C. private sector and thought leadership. And they also, in opening up the Pandora's box, rolled the dice that there'd be no blowback against them. One of the things that happened this weekend that was sort of overshadowed by the purge was a Houthi-fired missile for the first time, went deep into Saudi Arabia. It was shot down, according to the Saudis, by a Patriot missile battery, an American-provided missile defense system. The Houthis said, brace yourselves because we're going to be hitting your cities the way you hit ours. The Saudis said this was an act of war by Iran. So it isn't just like bloody in the terms of what the Saudis are doing in Yemen. Potentially, you have ballistic missiles and, and Scud missiles. Not, I don't want to be clear, not nuclear missiles. We're not talking about Armageddon, but missiles hitting Saudi airports, missiles hitting Saudi cities from fired within Yemen, theoretically, you know, Jen, from your point, provided by Iran. And then this consensus that you're referring to, it's a solidifies further. Then it's like, let's roll them back because they're bombing our ally. Right. And I think it's also really important to talk about the the effects that it has when we support the Saudis, not just vis-a-vis -vis Iran, not just vis-a-vis -vis like other countries. It's also not really great for a lot of people inside Saudi Arabia, right? Like there are pro-democracy activists. There are, you know, women's rights activists. There are 
there are Shia activists who are, you know, violently repressed by the Saudi government. And because of this broader ideological proxy war with Iran that we have thrown our lot in with the Saudis, we're essentially saying, yes, we support you. I mean, Trump literally tweeted that out. Like, I support everything. You guys are doing a great job. You have it well in hand or whatever. This is not, you know, a leader who's trying to bring freedom and democracy and like reform the country in a way that we think of it. And we're essentially just supporting that. And that's the kind of thing we've done over and over and over again in countries all over the world, but especially in the Middle East, that has caused so much of the instability because people in those countries don't really like that and decide to rise up and fight and sometimes form terrorist groups that sometimes target America for that reason. Oh, yeah. And and an aside here is that up until 2014, Saudi Arabia was through private donors providing money to ISIS. Right. And they've funded super kind of extremist Wahhabi mosques all over, you know, Central Asia and throughout Pakistan and Afghanistan. But, you know, it's because of this this blind support and this kind of broader geopolitical maneuvering that, you know, we just blindly support this kind of these kind of leaders when they do this sort of thing. And it's really, really bad for like humanity. It's really bad for the people in those countries. And it also ends up eventually being really, really bad for us. So I want to close the segment with a question that came up when we were doing our sort of planning discussion on this yesterday. Uh, Our producer, Julian Weinberger, asked a version of it. Julie Bogan, who helps us with social media, asked a version of it, which kind of boils down to this. Is there a good guy in this? And if so, who? No, nobody is good. The Saudi government is a fundamentally corrupt institution. On the one hand, you have this quote-unquote reformer whose idea of being good to women is finally letting them drive, which, great, congratulations. On the other hand, you have a bunch of corrupt plutocrats who he threw in jail. They are corrupt, even though corruption was a pretext. They steal money that could be used to fund services for the people that comes from the oil sector, and they use it to make themselves wealthy. Then you've got a clerical establishment who thinks that the 19th century is too soon and we should be going back to like the 8th. And those are the people. And all of them seem pretty fine with killing thousands in Yemen. This is a devastatingly vicious political system. It is one that every American leader seems to praise and not just praise. Our current president is showering love on them. And we call them allies. Right. This is if anyone wanted to be taught that there is an illusion about human rights in American foreign policy, look no further than our longstanding relationship with one of the most brutal, corrupt and vicious governments on Earth. I think that's Amen. About, yeah, that's about as perfect an end to that as one could have possibly had. Hey, it's Yochi from Worldly. And if you're hiring, and we are, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward, but they're hard to find. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. That means you can rest easy because your job posting is seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, it doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Here's the nice thing. You can find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes 
for a lot cheaper than usual. In fact, for free. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Worldly, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Worldly, you get to use this for free. One last time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Worldly. Hey, everybody. It's Yochi from Worldly. So we're all looking for something. It's love. It's purpose. It's the great question of why are we here? What are we meant to do? If you have toddlers, it's what do they hide? If you have pets, is why are your keys suddenly missing? And holy hell, I hope they didn't eat them. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device so you could actually find all those missing things. And now they've done it all again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. With Tracker Pixel, you'll never worry about losing your things again. Here's why. It's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You put it on anything you tend to lose, keys, wallets, a cat, but not on a toddler. I've learned that the hard way. It's small enough to fit anywhere, and it really works. When you misplace an item that has a Tracker Pixel attached, you can use your smartphone, and a 90-decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It also has powerful LED lights, so you can find it in the dark. Lose your phone, as I regularly do? Press the button on your Tracker Pixel, and your phone rings, even if it's on silent. Lose your keys? Same deal. You can even locate your item if it's miles away, because every Tracker user is part of the largest crowd-locate network in the world. It's like Waze, but for finding things you may have lost. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you have literally nothing to lose. So here's how you get it. Go to thetracker.com slash worldly, and you get 20% off any order. That's thetracker.com slash worldly for 20% off. I'll spell it, thetracker, T-H-E, tracker, T-R-A-C-K-R, dot com slash worldly, 20% off. You'll love it. It will help you find the things you've lost, even if you have dogs and toddlers. For elsewhere, we're shifting to a vastly different part of the world and a vastly different kind of story, which is to Beijing, where our president has been on a multiple-day visit, showering love not on the Saudi royal family, but instead on the leaders of Beijing who have showered it back, and they've done it in a very visual way. Cannons firing, flag-waving, jumping children, more jumping children. So Jen, More jumping children. Jen, why are there jumping children? Why? That is a fantastic question. So, so funny. So Trump is in China um, to round out his big 12-day Asia trip. He is going, going there to meet with Xi Jinping, the, the president of China. And essentially, so our colleague Zishan Alim has a really great piece up on, on the site, Vox.com, about this and how world leaders have really figured out how to kind of manipulate Donald Trump. Um, we actually saw this in Saudi Arabia when he went to the Middle East, when he went to Saudi Arabia, they roll out the red carpets, they, you know, do all the the pomp and circumstance. They really cater to his ego and flattery and try to, you know, show him how respected and how important he is because they know he responds well to that. And the idea is to kind of try to get him flattered and buttered up so that, you know, he's in a better state of mind when it comes to negotiating on things like trade and trade imbalances and uh, North Korea and like the bigger issues that that the U.S. and China are are confronting, you know, together and sometimes against each other. So you have Trump kind of going there and he's also doing it back, right? So he's praising Xi Jinping, you know, he's in Beijing and he's 
going like they took him to the Forbidden City, um, something that I guess they haven't done. Well, it, it's that they closed the entire Forbidden City for him. They just like emptied it of all tourists right. just for him. And right. His wife. And they went to have like dinner with them and they haven't brought like a foreign leader and done that in like decades, I think. So it's really this whole massive spectacle designed to kind of show Trump look, you know, we get, you know, that you want to feel special, you want to feel important and respected so that, you know, they can essentially kind of manipulate him into not being like the big, tough, you know, hard negotiator guy, making him all mad. Like he really likes flattery and he will, you know, listen to Xi Jinping if he feels that he is respected. And and this is really universal, right? Like, so when he was in Poland, they bust in Polish Trump supporters. So he would have crowds that made him feel like he was at one of his rallies at home. Japan, I think, is my favorite because they gave him a $4,000 gold-plated golf club, which is the most Trump thing ever to exist, and also made knockoff Make America Great Again hats, which said, Donald and Shinzo make alliance even greater. And the broken English is the funniest part, but it's also gold embroidered on a white hat as opposed to in red. And just like... The knowledge down to Donald Trump's love of gold and like all gold, everything that's embodied in there indicates that there there must be psychological profilers and like biographical researchers in these other countries who are trying to figure out how to work the U.S. president in these ways. So it's really now becoming a game where while Trump is unpredictable in some ways, like he tomorrow tweet that we're banning, I don't know, more trans people from the military. Um, I'll rephrase that. Um, Donald Trump could tweet anything tomorrow, but it's very easy when you're meeting with him to push the right buttons to get him to do stuff. But I think, though, in some ways, what's more striking, I would say the opposite in some way. I don't think they need to have psychological profilers. One thing you hear from foreign leaders when they visit, especially if it's quiet settings, is that they used to spend huge amounts of money using spying, using profilers of the kind you're you're referencing to try to understand, well, who is this president? How does he think? What makes him angry? What's his thought process? How do you try to get under his skin? With Trump, you don't need to do any of that. <laughs> you don't need a profiler because if you want to know what Donald Trump likes, read his Twitter feed. If you want to know what angers him, read his Twitter feed. If you want to know what media he consumes, read his Twitter feed. And that's something we have never in the history of, of the United States. We talk about Trump often, how we've never had it in the history of the United States. But this is a big one. I mean, it's not just the flattery, the gold play golf club. These things are great. And on some level, they're funny. But the f- scary flip side is world leaders know what our president thinks because he tells them. I mean, all the he time. literally, yeah, he, he, yes, just yesterday changed the background on his Twitter profile to a picture of him, Melania, Xi Jinping, and Xi's wife standing at the, in the Forbidden City. Like it's this huge banner with like surrounded by these like Chinese performers. It's clear like he's showing, look, you know, this was amazing. He's been effusively praising, like, this is incredible. You guys have put on such a, you know, an amazing reception. Thank you so much. She, you know, you're so incredible. So it clearly works, right? Like it's not that difficult to manipulate him. And he's done flattery back, right? So you've had him referring to Xi Jinping as this great man, this great leader, praising him in a way that has not been seen before. And you've also had him doing smaller ways of sucking up to China, including this. So that was Arabella Kushner. That's Trump's granddaughter who came to China to sing in Mandarin 
to the Chinese. So if you want to have something that is as pro-Trump as a a gold-plated golf club, it's hard to get more pro-China than the sweet little granddaughter singing in Mandarin. It's important to note that with the exception of Japan, which also had the least absurd of the various different gifts, like they're funny, absurd in that sense, but least like over the top, shutting things down, pomp and circumstance. These are authoritarian or would be in the case of Poland countries, right? Saudi Arabia, China, they get what makes Trump tick in a way that Democratic leaders don't necessarily because you don't get that kind of stuff when you're a leader of a democracy. You get performances that sort of fit the national character, but you don't shut down entire areas of a city. You don't project the Democratic leader's face on a hotel. It's the kind of personal worship that that authoritarians are, are much more comfortable with and much more familiar with. And it bothers me that the president feels so at home in authoritarian settings. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I could tell if Jen was nodding because she's about to pop in or just No, I was just, just agreeing. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's really interesting, too, you know, when you look at um, how Trump has kind of – you know, his entire campaign was not his entire campaign, but one of the the planks of his campaign was like being tough on China, right? And like getting tough on China. And, you know, China is this big, bad, evil country that is trying, especially, you know, the Steve Bannon wing of, of kind of the Trump camp of this, like, you know, China is this, you know, rising power that we need to check its influence. And I think it's really startling to like, if you had shown this photo of, you know, Trump and Melania and she all standing together and all these pictures of them, buddy, buddy, talking and and smiling, you know, that they're getting along really well to Trump supporters during the campaign. They probably would be fairly shocked. On the other hand, it does go to Trump's larger narrative that he, you know, is this amazing negotiator, right, that he relies on on personal charisma, personal relationships to, you know, make these one-on-one bonds and then thereby make, you know, these really great deals that benefit America. And that's the part that it's not really clear on if that's actually happening, right? Like he seems to have gotten some fluffy symbolic business deals between the U.S. and China with like American companies and Chinese companies. But Rex Tillerson said yesterday, I believe, if not today, um, that what they had actually achieved compared to the massive trade deficit between the U.S. and China was really very little. Like they hadn't really achieved much. So it kind of belies, you know, if he's using this to actually accomplish his goals, that's one thing. If he's just doing this and not even getting anything out of it, then what's the point? Then it's just all bullshit. So we'll wrap there. Thanks as always to Jen, to Zach, to Jillian Weinberger, our producer. And to- thanks to Yochi. Thank you. Thank you. Our engineer, Peter Leonard, currently doing his constitutional duty of sitting on a jury. Next week, we'll tell you if he goes guilty or not guilty on the jury. Our social media manager, Julie Bogan. Our engineer, Riyad Shawi. And our editor, Srinivas Ramamurthy. Come find us and tweet at us, hashtag worldly. Email us, worldly at vox.com. We read every email. We try to respond to all of them. But email us. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you want to hear. Come rate, review, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, everywhere else you can find podcasts. Thank you very much. We'll be with you all next week.